knowledge and know that you are a most holy God, a God who is to be feared. And Lord, as we come to, to these verses in Timothy, we ask, Lord in heaven, that you would engage our minds, that we would be interested, that we would be intrigued by the, the questions and uh, what Timothy throws up here. But we do pray that you would engage our our hearts. We pray, Father God, that we would be moved, that you would use uh, this time uh, to speak to us, to minister to us, to feed us uh, through your Holy Spirit and for the glory of your dear Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, if you haven't done so already, please turn back in your Bibles to First Timothy to have that in front of you, and especially those, those verses from 8 to 11. Have that there. We'll pay close attention to it. Sometimes uh, what we'll do at the beginning of a sermon is read out or give out the headings. Uh, I'll, I'll do that just now. God willing, we'll look at these. This should be easy to remember. Tonight we will look at the use of the law, the abuse of the law, and then a misuse of the law. So that's, that's what we'll look at. Uh, the use, the abuse, and the misuse of God's law. Right, first of those, the use of the law. Now, come on, we've read this portion of scripture. We've been in First Timothy for weeks. Now, uh, in our evening services, we've read that section of scripture. I think it's three times, maybe even four times. So by now, we know what it is that we're dealing with, what we've got in front of us. It's a letter, isn't it? And it's a letter written by the aging Apostle Paul. And he's writing to who he regards to be his young son in the faith, Timothy. So you know, I know, what we've got here. But what about this particular part of the chapter? What what have we got here in 1811? I'll tell you what. Let's just consider the first, is it seven words? Just have a look at them in verse eight. Is it seven? I think it's seven. Paul says to Timothy, we know that the law is good. We know that the law is good. And that throws up a question, doesn't it? I mean, what what does Paul mean by the law? The law is good. What's he talking about? Is, Is it the law of the land? Is that what it is? Is it the whole of the Old Testament? Is it, you know, the, the idea of the law and the prophets? Is that what he's called? Well, no. Most often, when Paul refers to the law in his letters, he is referring to the Mosaic law. So, you know, the law that God gave to Moses on Sinai. So, we're relieved. We think, okay, that's cleared that up. We know that the law is good. He's talking about the Mosaic law. It's cleared up. It hasn't really cleared it up, though, has it? Because what do we know? We know that on Sinai, God gave to Moses different categories of law. Didn't he? Different types of law, different kinds of law. Don't we know that? Don't you know that? There were ceremonial laws. Were there not? I mean, think about Exodus. Think about Leviticus. All of the commands about, you know, the prescriptions about worship. How does God in the old covenant, how is he going to be worshipped? You know, what do you do with the animals? What do you do with the blood? Where do you sprinkle the blood? Yes, ceremonial laws. Wait, 
laws that we know pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the coming of the Messiah. And laws by this stage, by the time Paul's writing, laws that had been beautifully, fully, gloriously fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul's not talking about those. They've been fulfilled. What else? Ceremonial law? Yeah. But we also know that God gave Moses civil law as well. You know, laws to help with the administration of justice for the people of Israel. Again, laws not relevant here. That's not what Paul's talking about. So you with me? If it's not ceremonial law that's good here, if it's not civil law, what is it? Well, if the kids were here tonight, then... I would ask them the obvious question. What was it that Moses was given (laughs) on Mount Sinai? What was he given? He was given the Ten Commandments, right? Kids, I'm sure, would shout that out. That's right, though, isn't it? You know, God gave to Moses ceremonial, civil, but also moral law. Law that God has written on the hearts of mankind. Laws that didn't end in the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see this? When Paul says to Timothy, we know that the law is good. What should you be picturing? What should we be thinking about just now? I think most accurately we need to think about the Ten Commandments of God. The law. So you're with me? You're with me? We know that the moral law, the moral law, it huge. But look at this. I mean, look at the text. Paul makes a qualification. Like it's not, we know that the law is good full stop. What does he say? Look at verse 8. We know that the law is good if, if, we, one uses it properly. So again, that's raising a question for us. You know, if there's a proper way to use, let's say the Ten Commandments, if there's a proper way to use it, what's the proper way to use the law? Well, let's say tomorrow you're at work and you're having your sandwich at lunchtime and one of your colleagues shuffles up beside you, you start chatting and they say to you, uh, okay, you were at church this weekend. What sort of church is it you go to? How are you going to answer that? Um, Sarah beats and keeps telling people that she goes to the Scottish church. We're not a Scottish church. You know, we've got connections to Scotland. But, you know, what would you say? We're, we're Calvinists. Why not? Presbyterian church, maybe. Do you know what we are? We're a reformed church. What does that mean? Well, amongst other things, it means, I suppose most obviously, that unlike most many of the churches in London, we trace our theological heritage back to what? We are a reformed church. We trace it back to the Reformation. We trace our theological roots back to... Back to guys like Calvin. Back to guys like Luther. Now you see those boys. They really wrestled with that question that we're dealing with here. Calvin and Luther. 
this idea of what's, what's, what's the right use of the law? What's the function, the purpose of God's law? What they did was they came with a threefold answer to how the law functions. Now, I want to say this to you. There's not many of us in here tonight. And it's your Sunday night. Most of you have struggled through traffic to try and get here this evening. And you get in and you look at your sheet and the sermon's called The Right Use of the Law. (laughs) And you might sigh. I want to say to you, this is incredibly important. We need to understand how the law functions because it affects our view of Scripture It affects our view of the Christian life. Most of all, it affects our view of God and the gospel. So, there's a threefold function of the law. What's that? You ready? The law reveals. Now, if you know much or anything about the Reformation, you know that the guys... Luther and Calvin had very, very different personalities, don't you? Right? Like Luther, he was a man for writing about... How do you put it nicely? Writing about his burping and his beer, basically. That's Luther, you know? Calvin's a little bit more sort of refined, isn't he? Now that... We see that different personality in their language here about the law. Because... Calvin, he speaks about the law and he calls it a mirror. It's a nice image, isn't it? Luther. <laughs> Luther, how does he know? Not a mirror. No. He calls it a hammer. You know, very sort of, very Luther. It's a hammer. It smashes things. Effectively, though, the idea is the same. Calvin is saying that when we look into the law, the Ten Commandments, what do we see? We see ourselves. We look into the Ten Commandments and God's moral law and we see our own inadequacy. A prohibition not to lie. We look at that and we see and know I lie. I am utterly dishonest. We see ourselves and we realize what? that we transgress and we break God's moral standard. It's a mirror, but don't you see? It's a hammer that also smashes up our self-righteousness, isn't it? It reveals. The second thing they said was that the law also restrains. So it reveals our inadequacy. It also restrains. Now, I think... Excuse me, could be wrong about this. I think Calvin follows Luther on the language about restraint. I think basically because you can't improve on what Luther said. He hit the nail on the head. Because he said that the law acts as a bridle. You know, as a, as, you know, the reins on a horse. Do you see what he means? He says that man and especially unregenerate man stares into the law, the Ten Commandments. And what does he see? He sees the punishments. 
he sees the judgment of God. He sees the anger and wrath of God. And he thinks to himself, I am not going to break that law. I'm going to try not to break that law. Not because of a love of God, but just out of a sheer fear of the consequences. Do you see it? The law acts as a bridle. It acts as as reins. It restrains man. And then what did we say? We said it was a threefold function of the law. There's a third one. So it reveals our inadequacy. It restrains. But also, the law rallies. It rallies. Um, I think it's in book two of the Institutes, Calvin's Institutes, which I'm sure Bob has got on sale in the back of his bookstall. So everyone will flood and, and buy one at the end. But in book two, I think, of the Institutes, Calvin says that the law, it should motivate you if you're a believer. That it should utterly encourage you in the Christian life. (laughs) Do you see why that is? What do you see when you look into the law? You see something of your God. Isn't that right? You look and you see something of his character. And you see something of your God's goodness. More than that, what do you see? You see what it is that delights God. You look at the Ten Commandments, you realize, ah, my God, he delights, he rejoices in the proper use of his name. In the proper use of his day, he rejoices in honesty and integrity. He rejoices in truth and that pushes us on, doesn't it? That motivates, says Calvin, that encourages us. And it's there that we apply this, isn't it? Friends, do you see what we do this week? What do we do? We go out into the world, we go home, and we meditate upon the law. We think about the law. We go to the Sermon on the Mount. We go to the Ten Commandments. We ponder over these things. Why? Well, do you know what Calvin says? Again, it's book two. Calvin says, we do that. What happens for the believer? He says, in meditating on the law, there is found for us freedom. There is actually joy for the believer in meditating and studying on God's law. Why? We do that this week. We will see there what delights Jesus. What delights our Savior. And doesn't that, won't that rally us to Christian living? We see the use of the law. (coughs) Excuse me. Second thing that we see here in 1 Timothy is an abuse of the law. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) My wife... Uh, for many, many years, was an avid letter writer. Uh, primarily, she wrote letters to her cousin. So if you go into our house at Woodford Green, you know what it's like? You, you open up one of the cupboards, and uh, you're almost guaranteed that big box of letters is going to fall in your head. Pretty much any cupboard. Love to write letters. 
Now, you know what that's right. She's, she's writing to somebody she knows well. It's not, it's not formal when you do that. Um, there's not a sort of big, grand introduction. If you're right, let's say you're writing an email to a friend. It's not like that. I mean, what do you do? It's very informal. You just, you just get to where you left off. You talk about what's happening just now. Now, take that idea in First Timothy. Think about what we've got here. Paul is not writing to the church in Rome that he's never met. Who's he writing to? He's writing to his mate. <laughs> he's writing to Timothy. He's mate. And what we've got to understand then is that here, Paul's intention isn't to give Timothy sort of big comprehensive treatise on the whole of the law. That's not what Paul's doing here. What is he doing? What's he doing? He's trying to help Timothy to deal with one specific problem about the law that has risen in Ephesus. Isn't that right? Now, do you remember... Well, what's the problem? Do you, do you remember what we, we, we looked at last time? We took a break from First Timothy last week. Do you remember what we saw before. Do you remember that there was false teachers in Ephesus? Do you remember, like, Laura was nodding when I was talking about the book of Jubilees and the myths and the genealogies that these guys were talking? Do you remember that? But hang on a second. Look what it is. Look in your Bibles at verse 7. What does Paul call these false teachers here? Look at this. We didn't emphasize this last time. (coughs) Deliberately. Paul says... These guys, these guys, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. Now that, that informs us, doesn't it? Like, so these people, these false teachers, weren't just talking about myths, not just talking about genealogies. What are they doing? They seem to be corrupting in some way, they seem to be messing about with the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Now, Okay, how? What were they doing, these false teachers? Well, to be honest, it's not all that easy to tell from the text what the exact problem, what they were actually doing with the law. But, I think there's hints. Now, look at what Paul says in verse 9. Now, Paul is saying this, remember, in response to their misuse of the law. Now, what does he say to counter what they're doing? He says, verse 9, We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. So, here's what I think was happening. The law is not made for the righteous, made for rebels. I think you've got a group of false teachers in Ephesus, and they were applying the Ten Commandments, God's law, exclusively to Christians in that city. And I think most crucially of all, that they were going massively overboard in the way they were applying the moral law to Christians. Do you want an example of of what I mean? Let's take one of the Ten Commandments. Let's go for the, you know, 
You shall have no other gods before me. So the false teachers, they take that and they're applying it to, to the people. Do you know what I think they're doing? They're applying it like this. They're saying, you should have no other gods before God. Okay, you're not allowed to do anything that you like to do. <laughs> Let's say you've got a favorite food. What's your favorite food? You're not allowed to eat that. Absolutely. You're a Christian. You're not allowed that. Why not? Because if you really like it, it might turn into a god. And you're not supposed to have any other gods before me. You think that's crazy? Let's take another example. What about do not commit adultery? What do the false teachers do with that? Same principle? They say, right, there should be no marriage in the church. I don't want any of you getting married at all. Why not? Well, because if you don't marry, you can't commit adultery. So we don't want you to, to get married. Do you see what's going on here? They're abusing the law. Maybe you look at me and you think, he's taking us too far. That does not sound right. Ready for this? Two chapters later, Paul comes back to this. What does he do? He rebukes the false teachers. And what does he rebuke them for? One, for commanding abstinence of certain food. Two, for forbidding marriage. In the church. Do you see it? These guys, they're going crazy with the law. Applying it only to the Christians and just tearing that apart and stretching it out. Now, I hope you look at that and you think, wow, that's a mess in Ephesus. Those people, that seems a crazy thing. But wait a minute. If that's wrong, what's the right use? What does Paul say? Come on, let's look at this. Verse 9. The law is not for the righteous. As far as restraint is concerned, it's not primarily for Christians. It's for sinners. Do you see what he's saying? The Ten Commandments aren't there primarily to restrain people who in Christ Jesus are desperately trying to live a a morally upright life. He's saying, no, primarily, if you're talking about restraint, it's about restraining evildoers. It's about restraining people who are desperate to sin. And what does he do to illustrate it? What have you got in front of you? Verse 9, you've got a list. What's the list? Look at the list. What is the list? What is it? Based on, look at the list. Isn't it great? What is it rooted in? Is it not rooted in the Ten Commandments of God? You've got a number of commands that relate to our God. Then you have a commandment about our relationship with our parents. You've got a commandment about theft, a commandment about lies. Do you see it? It's it's, it's the Ten Commandments. You see what Paul's doing? He's emphasizing by making extreme examples that the Ten Commandments, they're not about forbidding marriage. It's not about, you know, forbidding us from going to see our parents just in case we might dishonor them. You know, what is it for? Look at it. What does he say? It's about restraining the wicked from striking their parents or killing their parents. The law is not for the righteous. It is for rebels. Friends, how do we apply that this evening? 
do you look at this and, and do you look at it and, and, and see that there was false teaching in Ephesus? I mean, do you look at it and, and when Paul says these people didn't know what they're talking about, do you agree with that and, and say, this is terrible? Can I say to you tonight, the same goes on in here. We make the same mistake that these people are making here by stretching out the law and and misusing it. And I think that's probably almost definitely true of Reformed churches like ours. (laughs) We make the same mistake as as these, these false teachers here. Like, isn't it true that in Reformed churches like ours that we mistake sternness for holiness in the life of the church? Like we mistake some sort of harshness and severity for devotion to God, love for God, holiness. And we take the commands of God and in the life of the church we stretch them out. We take some of the, the commands we're given, the moral laws, and before you know it, we're saying to people in the church, you cannot come to church dressed like that. There are certain things. Okay, we're not forbidding marriage, but we're forbidding you not wearing that. You see, we, we, we okay, we, we don't do exactly the same things that these people were doing. But we are forbidding certain things that Scripture certainly does not make clear. We mistake strictness for holiness. And friends, we have to be very, very careful with that. Because we must see that adding to the law is as unlawful to God as ignoring the law altogether. We in here, in a Reformed church, we must not abuse God's law. Third thing, last thing, we see the misuse of the law. So a use of the law, an abuse of the law, and lastly, the misuse of the law. This is how we're going to close. We're going to look at a similarity and then a difference. That's it. Similarity and a difference. We're going to notice a parallel that's drawn here and then a contrast, okay? A similarity and a difference. What am I talking about? Well, what Paul does is end this section from 8 to 11, drawing a parallel between two things. What are the two things? He draws a parallel between the law, the law of God, and the gospel of God. How does he do that? Well, he says that all of these sins that he's listed here, and I think about this, not only do they contravene the law of God, what does he say in verse 11? They also contravene the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel. Isn't that something? He's saying that the law and the gospel, they have the same ethical standards, the same ethical perspective. Do you, see, do you see what we mean by that? Like, what is the goal of the, the law? It's the goal of the law. You know, these, these commandments. What's the goal? Isn't it, you know, uh, 
ethical purity. Even you can say the law, this ethical, moral perfection. What's the goal of the gospel? So you're eating your sandwich tomorrow. And that person's asked you about, hmm, asked you about the church you go to. And you've said it's a Scottish church. And the conversation goes on a little bit. You start talking about the gospel. And that person says to you, what is the goal? What's the whole point of the gospel? What's the goal of this thing you're talking to me about? What would you say? Do you say it's to be forgiven? To be born again? That's the, that's the ultimate goal of the gospel. Is that what you would say? Well, yes. But wait a minute. Is there not more to it than that? I mean, what about Ephesians 2? We're saved by grace. Are we? Yes. Is that it? Full stop. We're saved by grace for good works. What about Romans chapter 8? Friends, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. Is that it? No. We're saved by grace in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you see it? We are saved by Christ, but we're also called in him to live a life of pursuing purity. You see it? The goal of the law, wait a minute, it seems the goal of the gospel. It's our ultimate moral perfection, the same ethical standard here. Now what does that mean for you and me? I'll tell you what it means for this place. It means that the message of the church of Jesus Christ cannot simply be this. Repent. Temptation there, isn't there? Temptation for us to desire really snappy gospel message. Keep it snappy and short. Repent. But what do we want? We want the full gospel. That amputates the glory of God's plan, doesn't it? We want the full gospel. We want the truth that, yes, we repent. Yes, there is life in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is salvation, eternal salvation in Christ Jesus. But now what? Now we we live for Christ. We're pushed on by the Holy Spirit. We seek, we seek moral, ethical goodness. The same the same ethical perspective, the law and the gospel. Similarity. Let's end with the the difference. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? The law and the gospel, what is the difference? The law cannot save. We look into the mirror and our self-righteousness is smashed and we see how wicked we are. We look at the Ten Commandments. We see our dishonesty, our idolatry. But the law is utterly impotent. Do you see it? It can do nothing at all, nothing to save you and me. But what about the gospel? What about the gospel? What do we learn in the gospel? 
we learn that, yeah, we cannot do anything for our salvation. That there is somebody who can. We learn that, yes, we transgressed the law, but someone came into the world. And he has perfectly obeyed God's moral law. Can you think of that? Not once, not once, even coming close to transgressing any of the Ten Commandments. And what's the truth for us? Hmm? Now, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, God looks at us and he sees us in Christ's light. By us being united to Jesus Christ, by faith, counted with the Lord Jesus Christ, God looks at us, sees us in that light of, that light of righteousness. Isn't it awesome that the gospel does what the law cannot do? What does the gospel do? What can Christ do? What we do for you tonight? He can save you. So what do we do as Christians? What do we do in light of this? We go out this week and we obey the law. That's what we do. Why? Why would we do that? It to... Uh, Earn our salvation, earn some brownie points from God. Is that why we do it? No. Why do we do it? Oh, we do it out of gratitude. Because that perfect life that Jesus led for you, it cost him his life. We live this life, we obey the law out of gratitude to a holy and a gracious and the law given God. So we'll ask the question that I started with. What was the question? What role has the Old Testament law, what role does it play in your life as a Christian? Hmm? Do you see it? It must be the method, it must be the mechanism. I'll tell you what it is. It is surely the springboard for us to a life of gratitude, a springboard to a life of thankfulness to Christ. Isn't that it? That's the role of the law. Let's pray.